Spirit of the living God, we ask now that you will help us to understand Daniel 4 and to apply its truths to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated and open your Bibles now to Daniel chapter 4. Actually, I, I, I want to invite you to do even more than that. I want, you, I want to invite you not just to open your Bibles to Daniel 4 and to look at it with me, but I want to invite you into Daniel 4. I want to invite you into the experience, the con- not just the content of what is here, but what Daniel experienced, what Nebuchadnezzar experienced in this story. I do that, I say that because the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul wrote to us in 1 Corinthians, and he said that all these things that happened in the past, he's referring to these great Old Testament stories like Daniel 4. He says all the things that were written in the past were written as examples for us and warnings to us. So there's something here in Daniel chapter 4 that all of us need to hear. Now, 32 years have now passed since Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar the first interpretation of the dreams that he had about these successive kingdoms that would come after his. And of course, that interpretation of these successive kingdoms burst all of the illusions that Nebuchadnezzar had about any greatness that he himself possessed. That didn't seem to change his behavior or attitude of mind at all. Nebuchadnezzar needed, as it were, another reminder of the limits of his greatness so that he would know and understand the greatness of the living God. Now, it's clear even from the abbreviated reading that we had this morning that God was placing a demand on Nebuchadnezzar's life. God was giving to him a life-changing lesson. The demand was simply that He didn't want Nebuchadnezzar just simply to acknowledge that he was Yahweh, the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar had already done that a couple of times in chapter 2 and chapter 3. No, no, this demand was that God was demanding him to make a total commitment of his heart and his mind and his life to the living God. And actually, there is a line that gets repeated three times in this passage. It is, in essence, the key line. If you look at verse 17, this, announce, this decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. There's the lesson. And as I said, that line is repeated twice or three, two more times in verse 25 and down in verse 32, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So to help us dive in then to this demand and this lesson that God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar, I want us to do two things similar to what we did last Sunday morning. First of all, I want us to see, to just simply make some observations about what Daniel 4 tells us about Nebuchadnezzar and his experience. The second thing I want us to do is to learn from the passage, and so we're going to consider what Daniel 4 teaches us, not about Nebuchadnezzar per se, but about the living God, about the greatness of God. 
So the first thing we're doing now is what does Daniel chapter 4 tell us about Nebuchadnezzar? Now, as I've already mentioned from previous messages that and dreams that he received, he already, was already informed that there would be empires that would follow his. And he learned through that that it is God who sets up kings and brings kings down. It is God who raises up em- empires and God who washes them away. From the deliverance of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar learned that the Lord is the Lord of nature and history itself, that he can overrule the mightiest kings on the planet, and that he can rescue his servants from the decrees of evil kings. Nebuchadnezzar witnessed that himself. But even though God had revealed all this to him in his grace up to this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar was still evading God. He was evading the demand that God was placing on his life. And this actually is alluded to in verse 4 where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace contented. Contented. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm just going to carry on the way I always have. Nothing's going to change. Contented that his life would carry on as it always has. And here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar begins begins to understand what he needs to know, and what he needs to know is his weakness and his foolishness as a man who claims great greatness for himself. His eyes are going to be opened, and he is going to become utterly dependent upon God, and he is going to understand that he is nothing more, nothing more than an instrument in the hands of the living God. In other words, he is going to accept the main teaching that we find in the book of Daniel, that God is absolutely sovereign. So what happens in the story? Well, I want you to notice the first thing is that King Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter, and uh, he addresses it to his people, beginning at verse 1. This is a letter from a pagan king to his people. And after identifying himself and saying to whom he's writing, he says in verse 2, it is my pleasure to tell you or to write to you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed. Notice his words, for me, for me. He's writing a letter. It's a proclamation. It's a prelude to everything that he's going to tell us in the rest of chapter 4. And in this prelude to the letter, we understand immediately that this is a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar himself is testifying, not about himself, though he gives information about himself. He is testifying about the greatness of God, about his experience, about what he learned, about his response to the demand of God to make a total commitment of his life to him. Verse 2, this was for me, he says. The things God did for me. So now he tells us that he had a dream. The king had a dream. And the second thing is with the dream, he calls for Daniel to interpret the dream. Now, if you look at verse 5, you'll see immediately that Nebuchadnezzar was afraid of the dream that he saw. The latter part of verse 5 says that he was terrified. This was a dream that shook him to his core. And the wise men again, the, the, the diviners, the enchanters, the astrologers, all of them, they were unable to interpret the dream. They were useless as they had been in the past. And so he calls for Daniel to come. And Daniel is identified here in his Babylonian name as Belteshazzar. And the dream is of a tree. The dream is of a great tree. 
begins at verse 10, and, and, and Daniel says to him, or Nebuchadnezzar says, here's what I saw. I saw this tree. It was, it was very high. It, it grew, and it, it was visible to all, and, and, and its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit was delicious, and, and all the animals of the world, as it were, were gathered under the shade and the safety of the shade of this incredible tree. But then, beginning at verse 13, he mentions that there was a messenger. And he says specifically about this mes- messenger, he calls him a holy one who has come down from heaven. Do you notice the words there? Not only who this individual is holy, but where he has come from. He has come from heaven itself. And the messenger in verse 14 gives the order to cut down this massive tree. And look at verse 15, because it's so important to understanding what is taking place. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Now look look at the next line. Let him. Do you notice that the, the, there's a pronoun usage here? That what was now a tr- was once a tree that is cut down and will be bound with iron and bronze, a stump will be left and the roots will be left, that tree now becomes a him. Let him be drenched with the dews of heaven. Let him live with the animals along the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, or that is seven years, pass for him. So we get a little bit of a clue as to what's going on here. And then in verse 18, he asks Daniel to interpret the dream. So Daniel interprets the dream now, and he counsels the king. And you'll notice in verse 19 that that Daniel Daniel really didn't want to tell the king what the dream meant. Uh, he's, He's alarmed. It says he was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel understood what the dream was saying, and he really didn't want to tell him what it was all about. But he is encouraged to do so, and the king speaks to him and says, tell me its meaning, even if it alarms you. And and so Daniel tells him the meaning of the tree. And notice what he says in verse 22. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And truly, that was the case. For the Babylonian kingdom at this time under Nebuchadnezzar's rule stretched all the way from the borders of Egypt in North Africa to the boundaries of India and all of Iran. It was a kingdom like no other kingdom that existed up to this point in time. But, verse 24, what's going to happen? This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree the Most High is issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. God is going to cut down the tree, is what Daniel tells him. So if Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, then God is the lumberjack. And it's a decree. And remember this, the decrees of the Lord cannot be changed. What God has decreed, it will come to pass. 
This command, verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's the point that God is making here, and Daniel underscores it. Go back to verse 25. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. This is the demand and the lesson that God is forcing on to this pagan king. But Daniel does more than just tell him the interpretation of the dream. Look, verse 27, he actually counsels him. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. This is dangerous talk here. For, for a servant of the king to speak in this way, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Accept my advice, he says. Well, what happened? Well, the king ignores the counsel, and he continues to boast of his great greatness. We come to the middle of the story, verse 30, uh, verses 28 through 30, and this, this is the hinge of the whole story. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later, one year later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He boasts. One year later, he's been given time to heed Daniel's advice. He's been given time to repent. But now, one year later, he boasts, and you get the impression here, he's on the, on the roof of his palace. He's, he's actually up there. We don't know who was with him, but it seems as though there's some kind of a conversation going on. It's as though he's saying to everyone who's with him on either side on the roof of the palace, do you see it all? Look with your eyes. Look at how great it is. Looking down upon this massive city that he has built, as he calls it, this great Babylon, and we know it was a great city. The gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and Herodotus, the Greek philosopher who came 400 years later, said that, that a chariot with four horses could drive along the, the top of the walls of this city and actually turn around. The walls were so thick and wide. But verse 31 the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you. King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. He rejected the message that Daniel brought to him. He ignored the counsel. He disregarded the way of God's straightforward gentleness and patience with him to bring him to reason and to accept God's demand. And he mistook this delay of 12 months the delay of judgment as a sign that he was safe to ignore the word of the living God. And the result is the next point. The king goes insane. His authority was taken from him. It says in verse 31, in verse 32, you'll be driven away from people, live with wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge. He lost his power. He lost his position. And frankly, friends, he lost his humanity because God will not share his glory with another. The great tree, who Daniel also said in Daniel 2, is the great head of gold, became an animal. 
Now, there's a lot of speculation as to the nature of the affliction that came on him at this point in time. There is that which we call boanthropy, which a person, a mental illness in which a person imagines that they are a cow or an ox and they behave like it, or Lincoln, I can't even pronounce these words, Lincoln. Thropy, which is a person believes he's a wolf, and of course that has fueled stories of werewolves down through the years. Whether it was one or the other, it really doesn't matter. What what Daniel wants us to understand here was that this was the direct intervention of God. You will be driven from people and will live with the animals. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And in verse 33 and following, we read of the wretchedness of Nebuchadnezzar's condition. He was driven away. He ate grass like cat. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. In 12 months, this great man went from having power over an empire to not even having the power of his own faculties. All of his power was gone. There was nothing left. And the next thing we see in verse 34 is that finally the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he looked to heaven. Verse 34 says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Now keep in mind then, at the beginning when he boasted, his eyes are looking out upon this massive empire that he's built. He's looking out on his great accomplishments. He is boasting. He is glorying in himself. He is the center of the universe, he believes. But now he has been humbled. Now he's been brought low. Now he looks up finally to heaven and he acknowledges the Most High. The demand and the lesson, as it were, have been learned. And this is, as it were, a prayer or an acknowledgement of his dependence on the one true and living God. In verses 34 through 37, after he gains his sanity again, He praises the Most High God. I think we just need to read this because of the impact of what he says. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And then there's this this little song or a psalm that is written. Verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And here's the key line, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I believe that the acknowledgement that Nebuchadnezzar makes here is different from what he acknowledged in chapter 2 and chapter 3. There is a sincerity to what he says here. There is an acceptance to what he says here. It is as though he has learned his lesson and he is now a changed man. So what does Daniel 4 then teach us about the greatness of the living God? Well, clearly you can see in the passage that there is a a contrast being made between Nebuchadnezzar and God. Nebuchadnezzar talks about his greatness, but in the end he acknowledges the greatness of God and things are said about God in this passage. 
So what does Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar in his testimony, in his letter, what does he write down? What, if you go back to verse 4, he says, uh, actually verse 2, he says, it is my pleasure to tell you. What, 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 what is the pleasure? What, what, is, what does he actually tell us? And there are many things that he says here, and so I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, and I'm probably going to have, have to abbreviate the list I've already given you in your notes, but let me go to a few of them this morning. First of all, number one, this is the key. God and his kingdom are eternal. Verse 34, I praise the Most High and honored and glorified him who lives forever. He lives forever the unending existence and the everlasting power of God Nebuchadnezzar doesn't use these words but other places in God's word we read of him who was who is who is to come the eternality of God you see in Nebuchadnezzar's mind up to this point in time the gods that he believes in can procreate and if they procreate then they create other gods in other words, those gods have a beginning, and those gods can actually be killed and dethroned. They have a beginning. They have an end. But now he acknowledges that God is from everlasting to everlasting. Verse 34, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. It never ends. And the words he uses here are exactly what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar now honors God as the ruler of all. And unlike human empires which rise up and fall, God's kingdom endures forever. Clearly now, Nebuchadnezzar is accepting the original vision or dream that he had about this statue that was made of gold and, and, and silver and, and bronze and iron and clay, a, a, an image of successive kingdoms that would come after his. Now he's finally accept, accepting that the only enduring kingdom is God's. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear that God is in control of the world. He's in control of the world. Verse 35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. He controls the world. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jew like Daniel in exile in Babylon at this time. And, and you actually read this testimony, this letter, because you're one of the subjects of this kingdom that he is in charge of. Verse 1 says he wrote the letter to all the people who lived in his kingdom. And you get this letter, you receive this letter. How are you going to read this testimony? How, are you, how is this going to impact you? What would this do for you personally? What truths would this magnify in your mind? I think you'd be comforted by this message that despite all of the appearances to the contrary, Yahweh is in control. He is the true king of the world. And for these Jews, it was hard to believe they were far from their home. They were in exile and they could see every day the arrogant and wicked prosper. Those who mock God advancing and prospering in their lives on the backs of the oppressed peoples. 
They felt forsaken. They were tempted to say, as the psalmist did, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. To hear that God is in control of the world is, it was hard to believe. And friends, sometimes it's difficult for us to grasp this truth as well. We see those who ignore the living God, who, who disregard him, who mock him, and they prosper in life. And some of us are facing the prospect of losing our jobs. We see government pursuing policies that promote death and immorality. We see our government legislating against people or desiring to legislate against people who will offer sound advice that is rooted in the Bible to those who are so confused. We look at the rising prices of the basic commodities of life and we worry at times, will there be sufficient funds for those retirement years? We, we wrestle with illness and failing health and strength and we come often to the very edge of death or we know a loved one who is almost there. We're denied access to education the education we desire because of the personal convictions we hold to, and we struggle with this harsh longevity of a pandemic and all that is associated with us or with it. These are the things that, that dominate our, our mental and emotional landscape at this point in time, and the appearance of them all causes us to question this testimony. How is it possible that God could be in control when this is happening to us? But what does Nebuchadnezzar say? His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures forever. He does, verse 35, as he pleases, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our God that Nebuchadnezzar is describing. And if you are doubting the goodness and the power of God, you need to hear again that God is in control and he has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned us. He has not abandoned his world. He is powerful to save us and he will move heaven and earth to be with us. Sickness, your, your adverse personal circumstances in life, the, the devil himself, the power of the world cannot stop God. Whatever the circumstances or powers or forces that you face, you can trust in God's rule over it all. And he rules over it all for our good and for his glory. We could go on and just simply say that God is not just simply in control. God is beyond the control of his creatures. This is what Nebuchadnezzar had to admit, that God could not be manipulated by him. That he didn't have one up on God that he couldn't control God. And the next thing I want you to see is that God in his grace places around us people who point us to grace. God in his grace places around us people who point us to grace. It's clear to us as we read this passage that Nebuchadnezzar appears now as a new person. And this is a testimony that he's writing and he's expressing his gratitude here not only to God but he kind of alludes to expressing gratitude to Daniel in verse 8 because he says Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream he's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him this this is a statement of affection 
Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God in his sovereignty had placed Daniel into his life for a reason. There was a role that, that Daniel was to play in Nebuchadnezzar's life. I, I want to use two words at this point in time that are important for us. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, two words that are important, presence and proclamation. God wants us to be present in the lives of unbelievers, and he wants us to be proclaiming truth into their lives as well. Nebuchadnezzar's great need was for someone to be with him, to explain the dream, to help him make the right decision. He required a companion, and God gave him Daniel, as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego earlier in the story. It is clear why he sought Daniel out and why he wanted him in his royal court. Because in verse 8 he says, the spirit of the holy gods is in him. And this is repeated in verse 9 and in verse 18. Three times he says, Daniel, there's something about him. The spirit of the holy gods is in him. Now he's speaking here in pagan words. He, he doesn't fully understand. But what he's communicating, and it's clear, is that there's something unique about Daniel, that he knew more, that he spoke truth, that God was with him, that there was a wisdom that came from above through this man. And that when Daniel prayed, he prayed with a sense of reality. I think this is a reminder to all of us of how we are to live the gospel in an antagonistic age. Friends, you and I cannot retreat from the age in which we live, and we cannot retreat from the people who oppose the living God. We cannot retreat. It is sometimes uncomfortable for us to be in Babylon, but we cannot retreat. We must engage. We must show people by our everyday interaction and friendship with them that the spirit of the holy God lives in us. What good is salt if it's not sprinkled? And what good is light if it's not allowed to shine in the dark place? Daniel's simple presence in Nebuchadnezzar's life was significant. It was a sign to this pagan king that God was surrounding him, as it were, with grace. That God gave to him a personal shepherd, even though he did not deserve one. And notice that Daniel shows Nebuchadnezzar compassion. And this is the man who was responsible for exiling him into captivity for 70 years and oppressing his own people. But Daniel loves this man, presence, proclamation. And we see this in verse 27 where he, he doesn't step back from speaking. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. You see the, the, the cautious but, but, but courteous witness of this man. Renounce your sins. What a thing to say to a great king. You're a sinner, and you are in need of grace, and you need to repent. You see, he helped Daniel to, to, uh, to face the word of the living God. He attempted by his words to get, Dan, to get Nebuchadnezzar to lift his eyes toward heaven. And now all of what Daniel says all boils down to two statements that he make, makes. In verse 25, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. In verse 26, that heaven rules. And so he appeals to him to repent. 
And when he tells them to repent, and he says, repent of your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, in essence, you know what Daniel is saying? Nebuchadnezzar, you are not above the law of the living God. You are a man who's established his own laws to rule a kingdom to the ends of the earth, but you are not above the law of the living God. The law given through Moses is not only binding upon the Jews, it is binding upon all the peoples of the world, including you, O king. That is what Daniel was saying. I can imagine he was tempted to be silent, but God used Daniel to bring light to this king. Friends, I think we see a wonderful picture of grace here, that God in his grace surrounds individuals who don't know Christ. He sends people to them to give them his grace. And if you look at your life and I look at mine, I think of the individuals that God brought into my life, even as a child, that surrounded me and I had no knowledge of the gospel, but influenced me and ultimately were used by God to turn my eyes and to lift my eyes up to heaven. And some of you have not yet believed. Some of you, like Nebuchadnezzar, continue to stay in your pride and continue to rely upon your own sufficiency. You have not yet believed, but God, in his grace and mercy, has placed people into your lives. The fact that you're even here today points that truth out. It may be a parent who knows Christ or, or, or a spouse, a husband or a wife it may be a neighbor who's invited you to come. And it may be a friend that you're here with today, but someone you work with perhaps. But, but God has placed into your life people to point you to the grace of God in Christ. The next thing we see here in this passage is that God resists the proud and exalts the humble. Don't we see that very clearly here? God is resisting Nebuchadnezzar all along the way, but why does he do it? He does it because he wants to humble him. And Nebuchadnezzar's last words in verse 37, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's so much that I could say in this point, but I'm going to skip over this, and I want to go to our next point. And it ties in with this thing of God resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. And that is that God shows to us our impotency. We are all sinners. According to God's word, every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Our hearts have turned away from the living God. We have chased idols of our own making. Nebuchadnezzar is certainly an example of this. And we do that because we think that going our own way and creating our own gods and, and having our own accomplishments in life, that, that these are the things that will actually give us life. And to show us how foolish we are, God sometimes brings us into situations, circumstances that we have no control over, that reveal to us just how impotent we really are. In other words, God, in his grace, can bring us to the end of ourselves in order to humble us. God, I would say, goes to great lengths, as we see here. He goes to great lengths to humble people to drive the idols and the pride away from our lives in order that we might turn to him, the one who truly gives life. And in our pride, we believe that we have everything we need within ourselves. 
We can solve the issues of our life. We can save ourselves. But God in his grace will not let us go on this way. I mean, why is this story in the Bible? Why, why did God, as it were, go out of his way to get Nebuchadnezzar to write a letter and to get Daniel to include it in his book? It's because God wants us all to learn a lesson. He wants to bring us down for our good and for his own glory. And that is why God opposes the proud, because he wants to bring us to the place where we will do what Nebuchadnezzar did. We will finally look up and we'll raise our eyes up toward heaven. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that he was answerable to the living God as we all are. And so God humbled him so that eventually he would look up. And God humbles us. And God shows us how impotent we really are. And he does it not because he hates us, not because he's some capricious God who, who like a cat with a mouse, just simply wants to play with us like a toy. He does it because he loves us. And he longs for us to know his grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And notice what Nebuchadnezzar says in, in verse 35. No one can hold back his hand. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, he's saying that man is nothing before God. That all of who we think we are is futile and vain in the presence of God. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn dependence upon the one who created him. I think you're aware, as I've just been speaking about this now, that Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, actually gives to us, as it were, the anatomy of a salvation experience. This testimony reveals the way in which God gives grace. He brings us down because he wants to reveal our sinfulness to us that we are powerless to save ourselves in order that in humility we will call out to him and look up to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this brings us to the final thing that I want us to see today that Daniel chapter 4 alludes to in its teaching. And that is that God uses our humiliation to grant us his grace and to bring him to glory. Now, we fight being humbled. Every one of us does. Some of you right now are fighting God because he's trying to humble you. And we resist his gracious attempts to bring us to our knees and to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and we are not. You are not. Now, this is the essence of what it means to be a sinner. What it means to be a sinner is this. I am Lord, and Jesus is not. Listen, I must see, you must see, all of us must see, all of us need to see the wonder of the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God actually uses our humiliation to grant us grace and to bring glory to himself. Now, how can we be sure of this? How can we know this for a fact? 
And we can know this because of Jesus Christ. Now we know it was humiliating for Nebuchadnezzar, the so-called king of the world, to become an animal and to crawl on the ground and eat the dust of the earth. But I want you to consider this morning another king, the true king, who was brought down from the heights of heaven to the depths of this earth. And this king could truly look out over all of creation and say, is this not the world that I have created for my royal residence, by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty? He didn't just create one of the seven wonders of the world. He created the world, and he did it out of nothing. And instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself. And even though he was in very nature God, he humbled himself and became a man. He left the comforts and the glories of heaven to live on earth. This was a step downward. This was humiliation. And when he was born, he was placed in a trough that animals eat and drink out of in a stable where animals abide. And he was born the son of a poor carpenter who was from a forgotten town on the backside of a hill called Nazareth. He was born poor. He was born into the status of a servant. And he took his humbling even further in that he took the form of a servant He lived with the sick to help them. He preached to the poor to improve their lives. He washed the feet of those who followed him. He went through all of the struggles of life. He was hungry. He was opposed. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was lonely. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering. And Jesus carried this servant's form all the way to a criminal's cross. And this was the chief humiliation of all. That the Lord of glory, the King of creation, the sovereign of life itself, died. And in his death he bore the wrath of God Almighty. He did not die like the thieves who were on either side. Like, like, he died like no one could or no one would. He bore God's wrath. He experienced God-forsakenness. He knew the mocking of the people in the crowds, the very people he had created who shouted their insults at him. This was humbling. This is humiliation. But this humbling and humiliation was not forced upon him because he was proud. This was his own voluntary choice to save us from our pride. This is a humiliation far greater than Nebuchadnezzar experienced, a humiliation far greater than any humbling that we ourselves would know. And the important question is, in all of this, was God in control? Was God in control in the life and the death of Jesus? Was God able to use Jesus' humiliation? And the Bible tells us yes because God raised him from the dead and exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. And one day at the end of the age, every knee is going to bow to the true king. Everyone is going to confess that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So how can we know that God can save us? 
How can you and I know that God is still sovereign when, when sin and the devil and the world seem to be in charge? How do we know that our humiliation can be used by God for our own good and his glory? How do we know? And we know because we know Jesus, who is the true king. So take your eyes off of yourself and all of your accomplishments in life. Take your eyes off of your, fail, your fail, failures and disasters. Stop acting like Nebuchadnezzar. Lift your eyes to heaven to see Jesus, the humbled and exalted one. His death and resurrection means are the means by which you can be restored to your senses and made welcome in God's presence. So renounce your pride. Be humbled by your sins and embrace him who is mercy and grace and you will find life. Life. Please stand. Father in heaven, thank you for Daniel chapter 4. Thank you for giving to us a picture, as, as it were, of a salvation experience. Oh God, use this message in all of our hearts and work salvation in those that you are humbling now. I pray for Jesus' sake. What strikes me more than anything else in the passage that we looked at this morning are Nebuchadnezzar's words in the second verse where he said, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. This to me is an indication that he had truly been converted that his life was completely changed at this point in time. He said things about the mighty God before, but it never brought him pleasure. But now it brought him pleasure. And that is the sign of new life in God. And so, if you have this new life in you, may the Holy Spirit rest upon, upon you. May his fruit be seen in you on a daily basis as you go into your world to bring the presence of Christ and the proclamation of the good news that he is the way to the Father and that no one can get there except through him. May you find great pleasure in sharing this story, your story, your testimony of the Most High God with those you come in contact with this week. And in doing so, may you receive even more pleasure from our great and holy God. Amen.